um, over 30 years ago when I attended the church that he pastored in Minnesota, and later I ended up on staff working there. Um, if you've been around Hope, you've heard me quote him all the time. And sometimes, actually, if I say something and I want it to sound smarter, I just throw Dave's name on it. So he may or may not have said it. That confirms some of your suspicions, right? Um, but over the past decade, especially, Dave has been a, a mentor and a friend. And this is actually he and Bonnie's fifth fifth year in a row coming down here to Hope. Um, I would not be the person I am today or, or the in the place of my life that I am today if not for the, the life and ministry of this man and his wife, Bonnie. And he has a word for us today. So uh, buckle up and will you give a warm Hope welcome to Pastor David Johnson. I'm taking the ribs. I'll take those, yeah. Yeah, that was a good idea to take those ribs. Hey, guys. Uh, Thanks, Doug. Um, It is a a joy to be with you again, fifth year in a row. Um, Feel like the relationships we have here are really special, starting with Doug and Heidi, obviously. Uh, been invited into elder meetings, and I, I just feel like I know you. And this church is one of, I mean, I was at Open Door for 38 years, but this church is in my heart. And so it's, a, I love the connections that have remained. It feels like home. And um, particularly, it's fun to have Megan. I just pointed to the piano, but you moved, because here you are. Megan close, goes to Open Door, her mom and dad. Dear friends of mine, Jason's in a small group with me, and he's about a little older than one of my sons, and um, Jason and uh, Annie are watching today, so hello, and I just want you to know <coughs> that I hold that group together. That group is nothing without, <laughs> thank you, Jason, wherever you are. I'm, um, I'm glad to be here during Lent, uh, this being the second week of Lent, like some of you, and Doug kind of touched on this last week. I didn't grow up in a tradition that understood or even valued Lent. He associated it mostly, as Doug said last week, with something you give up. I had a lot of Catholic friends growing up in Chicago who um, observed Lent and they gave up something like meat or whatever it is they gave up. I had no idea why they did. I had no idea why we didn't. I just felt superior because we didn't. I don't know why. Um, uh, when they would ask me, uh, you know, assuming that I was a Catholic, as everybody was, what I gave up for Lent, my standard smart aleck answer was, I gave up Lent for Lent, which I think is hysterical. Um, much like Bruce Heineke last week, I don't see him here, but last week I heard him on the tape say, when he, Doug, remember Doug was kind of polling all of you, what he gave up for, and he said, nothing. And I, before Doug indicated that it was Bruce, I knew it was Bruce saying, I gave up nothing for Lent, Um, but then I thought about that, and I'll tell Bruce this later, that nothing, giving up nothing, nothing is something, and something isn't nothing, so he gave up something for Lent when he gave up nothing for Lent, which is something, and I think he should be proud of that, and I hope that joke goes better in the next service. But the whole point of all that silliness, and even you're wanting to poll people about what they'd given up was to say that we wanted to go deeper with that give up thing. And what are some significant things that maybe need to go, we need to wrestle down. And so last week, Doug began to talk about giving up darkness, about giving up 
that whole way of living in the dark and stepping into the light and learning how to live in the light of what is true about life and about myself. And that's why this week I want to talk about despair, but not despair. I want to talk about giving up despair and um, not pretending all is well. Uh, but the way to give up despair is not to pretend that all is well and that everything is going to be fine. Um, to be giving up denial and minimizing pain, not slapping on a happy face and calling that faith, but by learning how to see something more. I want to talk about learning how to see something more than the pain when all you can see is the pain. But to get all, to all of that, I want to ask a question. I'll start with a question. And it's a question that the psalmist asked in Psalm 11 when he was seeing some things in the world he was living in and hearing some things in the experience he was having in the world, that much like the things that we're seeing and hearing in the world today uh, were disturbing things, uh, disorienting things, frightening things. Some of them were unfixable things. And his question was this in Psalm 11, verse 3, when the foundations are shaken... What can the righteous do? When the foundations are shaken, what do we do? When the wicked bend the bow, he says in verse 2, when they make ready their arrow upon the string, and the imagery there is that it's feeling like they're aiming it right at me, when they shoot from unseen places, meaning unexpected, when unexpected things hit me like that, and they are shooting at me at the upright heart, what can the righteous do in that context? Let's say it. This way, when things that aren't supposed to move, like foundations aren't supposed to move, do. When things that aren't supposed to be shifting or shaken, when things that aren't supposed to do any of that, because we're leaning on some of those things, do. When the pendulum of life swings, and the pendulum, by the way, of life does swing, sometimes radically and often with blinding speed and sometimes for no apparent reason, from good things into bad, from happy things into sad, from order into chaos, certainty into fear, from life makes sense to nothing makes sense because the pendulum swung and it's all because someone pulled the trigger or someone ran a red light or someone dropped a bomb, or spread a rumor, or someone got a diagnosis, or someone broke a vow, and now the, the marriage you thought you had, uh, you don't. You might have a marriage, but it's not the one you thought you had. And, and, and now the job you thought you had, you don't, or the health you thought you had, you don't, because something that's not supposed to be shaken, that's not supposed to shift, it's not supposed to move on us, does. It just does, because the pendulum swings. That's the question. How do we as God's people navigate that? How do we keep our balance when the pendulum swings, when the foundations that aren't supposed to shake are shaking, when the wicked bend the bow, meaning when life isn't fair, when they shoot from unseen places, unexpected places, how on earth do we navigate that? And don't tell me to run, says the psalmist. This is, I kind of did this backwards. Verse 3 is the question. In verse 1, he says, don't tell me to run, to flee as a bird to my mountain. 
And the reason he doesn't want them to tell them, don't tell me to flee like a bird to my mountain, because that's what I want to do. So that's bad advice to run away. Don't tell me that. So to answer the question, uh, how do we navigate that? Let me ask you another question. Um, how did they? And by they, I mean the people of the book. This book we read called the Bible. I mean, I mean people like Peter and Paul, like Mary and Martha, James and John and Elizabeth, too. All those people who came before us, people of faith, who are part of the story, and so are you, the story of God who we read about, as I said in the Bible, they are our spiritual fathers and mothers, and I think the stories are there for us to kind of learn from them and even see in them the same realities of life that we have to face. And um, every one of those people we read about in the scriptures are people who knew what it felt like for the pendulum of life to swing uh, from good into bad, from happy into sad. We could just start at Pentecost. Let's just start at Pentecost as an example of a pendulum swing into some wonderful things. Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit came with power, it was the promise of the Father, um, and it blew like a mighty rushing wind. People came to faith that day. 3,000 in one day came to faith, which is an amazing swing of the pendulum. This pendulum just swung into positive things. That was chapter 2 and chapter 4. It swings the other way because Peter and John are arrested, given 39 lashes. That's 40 whew, lashes, save one, which for some people is a death sentence. More bad news than good is what we're living in now with that kind of treatment. But then in chapter 5, it says the word of the Lord continued to spread. <laughs> and signs and wonders were taking place from among the people. It says in verse 12 of Acts chapter 5, and the apostles we're being held in high esteem. So we go from a 39 lash kind of thing into being held in high esteem, signs and wonders all over the place as they spoke the word with boldness and multitudes of people believed. So things are looking good because the pendulum swung, but then it swung again the other way when in chapter 7, Stephen is stoned. In chapter 8, a persecution arises and though Saul is converted and becomes Paul, who was part of Stephen's being stoned in chapter 7, when he's, Saul is converted in chapter 9, even though that happens, James is beheaded uh, in chapter 12. And so it goes, just like that. Throughout the entire book, the pendulum swings, sometimes with blinding speeds in unexpected ways. It's just part of the story. Um, I even think we need to know. It's just part of the story. It's part of navigating the swings to realize, I don't know, I like this, but it's not unusual. Um, in chapter 14, Paul heals a man who was lame since birth, and people thought he was a god. Good day. <laughs> you know, no, it's just me, it's Dave. <laughs> anyway, they did, though. They, all of a sudden, like, the, the crowds are beginning to grow, and they're declaring... The gods, in fact, in verse 12, it says, of Paul and Barnabas, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. They think Barnabas is Zeus. They think uh, uh, Paul is Hermes because he was the primary speaker. Paul was. 
verse 12, and that's all pretty heady stuff, but it doesn't last long. You know why? Because <laughs> the pendulum swings. That's just what it does. And when it does, the crowd that a few verses previous were going, the gods have come down and they are the gods. Um, the crowd turns, and now, <laughs> pretty radical swing, they want to stone Paul, and they do. In verse 19, Paul gets stoned, dragged out of the city, and left for dead, and it happened in the blink of an eye. Boom. In the space of verses 12 to verse 19, what happens to you two, and to me, and to us, uh, to our church, um, because things are going well, you know, um, God's presence is real in our family, maybe, in our church. Answers are obvious. Directions are clear. Faith is strong. We knew what we were doing, but then something shifts. You're not sure what. You're certainly not sure why the pendulum swings, and, 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 and now you're not sure of anything at all. Um, this last year, we got a phone call from my daughter, 43-year-old daughter, and her husband, and our two little kids, and Erica had just, Erica, our daughter, had just gotten a diagnosis of stage four breast cancer. And I, I can replay it in my mind. I can, I can find the feelings that I had when the pendulum of her health and expectations and just things you take for granted. It'll always be there. Pendulum swung pretty radically in one direction. Um, now check this all out here. Back to, back to the Apostle Paul. After they left him for dead, okay, let's get back to his stoning, which I'm sure he would love us to dwell on. <laughs> they had left him for dead, it says in verse 19. It says in verse 20, they stoned him, left him for dead. In verse 20, it says, literally, look at it. It says he got up. He just, you know, did what you do after you get stoned. He got up. That's what he did. Next day, next day, goes to Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Strengthening the souls of the disciples in verse 22, encouraging them to continue in the faith that, such that by, verse, by chapter 19, um, everyone who lived in Asia had heard the word of the Lord. So he gets stoned, left for dead, gets up, goes back, starts to preach, starts to spread, so that in a couple chapters, everyone had heard the word of the Lord. And the name of the Lord Jesus is being magnified, an extraordinary miracle, stop right there, I love that. Extraordinary miracles. As opposed to ordinary, everyday, kind of boring miracles, extraordinary miracles <laughs> were taking place at the hand of Paul. So Paul is on the roll because the pendulum swung. Into positive things. But it also means something else. And now I'm stepping back to see the bigger picture and uh, kind of share with you my interaction with these stories over the years. Because it also means... As he gets stoned, gets up, goes back, everything keeps going, that Paul is like the Energizer Bunny. It's kind of his MO, and um, at a personal level, it's kind of irritating to tell you the, the uh, truth, because he just keeps going and going and going. I remember the first time I preached through Acts, I preached through Acts a couple times. Um, it, actually, it actually kind of bugged me that he just, do you ever just stop? Do you ever get discouraged. Um, uh, I, I, I can't relate. He never seems phased. 
Um, I, 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 and thought about being, I mean, when I get into a book, it's like I start living in that story and I th- start thinking, you know, I kind of know Paul. I wonder if I get, I don't think I could hang with him. I couldn't keep up. He gets stoned, gets up. I can't do that. So I wanted to get closer. I, honestly, I did. I wanted to get a closer look. I wonder if it really was like that. Um, like he didn't get phased. Um, I wonder if I could ask him some questions and if I could, they'd be personal like, Paul, did you ever get tired? Like, just you and me. It's not in the Bible. <laughs> did you ever skip a beat? Did you ever lose your balance when the pendulum swung? It wasn't like Luke made it sound. You just got up and went back, and there you are, and you're fine. Did you ever get confused? Did you ever want to quit? Um, did you ever doubt yourself or even God? Because to hear Luke tell it in Acts, Luke was written by... Acts was written by Luke, um, to hear him tell it, you never did. Skip a beat. You look like the Energizer Bunny to me. And it's weird because I found a way to do it. <laughs> I found a way to have this conversation with Paul, and, and it's not weird. I didn't hear any voices. Uh, by means of the second letter to the Corinthians, which he wrote during this season of these radical pendulum swings from Acts 13 to Acts 20, and it's fascinating, really, uh, at least it is to me, that in the very first chapter of uh, 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, uh, beginning in the 8th verse, he says this. Uh, you need to know something, this is my paraphrase, because I don't want you to be unaware about the affliction that came to us in Asia. It wasn't the Energizer Bunny there. For when we were in Asia, we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. So yes, I did run out of gas. It was beyond my capacity, such that we despaired even of life itself. So I wonder if I ever lost my balance. And when we were in Macedonia, 2 Corinthians 7, 5, our flesh had no rest. We had conflicts without and fears within. Wait, were you, you, you were afraid and fears within. But God, he says in verse 6, who comforts the depressed Stop right there. That blew me away. Paul got depressed. And when he got depressed, he didn't say, it's not that bad. When he got depressed, he said, I got depressed. But God who comforts the depressed, comforted us, verse 6, by the coming of Titus, which means, among other things, this, that it wasn't just you know, somebody bringing him a Bible verse, you'll be okay. Okay, what he needed he was so I love it that he needed something as human as a friend. But God sent tight. I got a friend, and that helped me through the depression. That's, that's helpful to me um, to t- see the human side of Paul because if Paul was afraid, because I get afraid, and so do you. And if Paul got depressed, because I get depressed, and maybe so do you. And if Paul needed help, sometimes just from a friend, maybe it ne- means that we're not defective. And maybe it means we're not disqualified when we do too. But that's not the only point, that, that, that Paul was human and, and um, that he got depressed. Because the overriding theme of his life, and this really is true, so I want to dig into this a little more. The overriding theme in his life really was that he persevered in his, in his faith and, and, his, uh, um, and his, in his strength to keep going, that he pressed on. And here's the key, I think, to his perseverance. I think this is the secret sauce. 
So, so while Paul acknowledged his frailty, he didn't deny it or minimized it, minimize it, and he was honest about his pain and the need he had for help from friends along the way. He did not embrace those things as if they had the power to establish his identity or determine his destiny. They did not have the final say in what he would do or where he would go or how he would live. So when he was stoned and left for dead, um, it's not that bad. That's not how he felt, but he, it didn't have the ultimate power. He saw something more than that. So am I afraid if I were to ask Paul, were you ever afraid? He would, I think, get indignant. Yes, because <laughs> he says it in 2 Corinthians 4, 8, and 9. Do I need help? Of course. Am I afflicted in every way? Remember that? 2 Corinthians 4, 8. Perplexed all the time. Persecuted, part of the deal, you guys. But I'm not crushed, not despairing, not forsaken, not destroyed. Why? How? Here's how. Here's why I think. Um, Because while Paul saw his problems clearly and felt the pain of them deeply, he just saw more. Um, 2 Corinthians 4.18. For we look not at things which are seen, but at things unseen. For things that are seen are temporal. They're real, but they're not lasting. So he's not minimizing it. The things which are seen are temporal. They're very real, and they really hurt, but they don't last forever. But the things unseen are in a different category. They are, un, they are eternal, and that is why, though afflicted, I'm not crushed, though perplexed, I'm not despairing, because though I see the problem clearly, not denying it, not minimizing it, and I feel the pain of it deeply, I almost tenaciously see more, choose sometimes to see more. Hebrews 11, verse 1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things, what, not seen. I can't see it, but I'm going to hang on to that, and the things not seen are eternal things, so I'm answering the question bit by bit. Answer the question, how do people keep their balance? People of faith who eventually find their balance when the foundations are shaken and the pendulum swings are people who live with this realization, among others, that this life, um, precious as it is, is not all there is to life. Um, That there is more going on in life than what you see which means that when the foundations are shaken, people of faith, don't deny it or minimize it. It's not that bad. We'll be fine. You might not be fine. It's not what they do. They don't put on a happy face and call it faith because though they see what is real, they just see more. And what they see is a bigger story. And what they have is an eternal perspective. And what they know is that this life is not all there is to life. And what that produces, among other things, is freedom and a kind of fearlessness you guys, to live and to love and, 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 and to endure and to attempt something and, and, and sometimes to defy and, and over the long haul to keep saying yes to God. Even though you don't always feel like it and don't know if you can. And we need to know that that kind of life can be, that it can be done. Um, 
That's why we need to hear the stories. And I'm telling you here today of those who did, of those who've gone before, like Moses. Remember him? (laughs) Moses, who by faith left Egypt. Hebrews 11, verse 27. Not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured. How did he do it? By, and here's the word, seeing him who is unseen. So he saw Egypt. Moses clearly saw Egypt. And he knew that Pharaoh was a really nice guy. He knew what Pharaoh could do to him, and he could hurt him, and he could kill him. He saw Egypt. He saw Pharaoh. Um, He just saw more than that. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember that story in front of the fiery furs? Nebuchadnezzar had come to them and said, you need to bow down to me, and if you don't bow down to me, I'm going to throw you into the furnace. And they um, said to each other, to encourage each other as they were sitting in front of the furnace. It's not that hot. Don't worry about it. It's not what they said. Um, There was some defiance in them because they said, our God will deliver us. Our God can deliver us. Then they got bolder. Our God will deliver us. And then they got real. Um, But even if he doesn't, I ain't bound down to you. Um, So how did they do that? Well, they didn't say it's not that hot. I think they saw the fire furnace. And they knew what it could do, and they were probably scared to death. They just saw more, so I'm not bombed on you. Joshua and Caleb, Numbers 13, who came back, remember this, with a different report than the other spies. I'm sure you remember the story of the people of God on the shores of the Jordan River about to enter the promised land. This is like a dreams come true kind of thing. So they sent spies into the land to kind of come back with a report. What are we going to be facing there, and they came back with this report in verse 27, that the land really is everything we dreamt. It's uh, full of abundance, it's a land of abundance, flowing with milk and honey, dream come true kind of things, but they said in verse 28, there's a problem, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. Indeed, it's, it's a land that devours its inhabitants, verse 32, and all the people we saw were men and women, I suppose, but of great size. Um, so much so, it says in the next verse, that, they, that we are like grasshoppers in our own sight. And that's an accurate report. That was all true, but that's all they could see. Joshua and Caleb came back with a different report, and here's the really important thing. They saw the same things, and um, that the cities were fortified. That's true, and they were very large, and all the people are of great size. They say, saw all of that, didn't minimize. Oh, no, they're not that big. They think they, were, they weren't that big. They didn't say that. They just saw more than that, and that's why they had a different report. Nehemiah, who gave himself to a good work, a noble cause, um, to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem. Rebuilding the wall, uh, to me, that's like archetypal language. It's symbolic of anything you've ever tried to rebuild. So you go to a church and you try to rebuild it, or you deal with your marriage and you're thinking, I want to rebuild this. We want to rebuild a relationship. So he's, it's a noble cause, rebuilding the wall. And in this particular place in Nehemiah, they're halfway done. They're, they've gotten 
somewhere, but they're only halfway there. And halfway, the halfway thing, now this is very symbolic language. It's not just an historic report. This is really archetypal language here because the halfway point of anything, the halfway mark of your life, for instance, the halfway point of a day is a critical time uh, in the day. It's a critical point for anything because when you're halfway there, it means a couple things. One, it means you've been at it a while. But you're, but um, you're not near done. Um, you've been at it a while. You've actually made some progress in your life, whatever. Um, but you're not near done. You're only halfway there, with a long way to go. Um, the ancients actually had a word for this, this halfway point of a life. Um, uh, or a season, like you're in some sort of season in your life, and they called it acedia. And, and it's a Latin word that means the fatigue that strikes at noon. Think about that. Symbolically, it's the heat of the midday sun. When I was in college, I worked construction every summer, came back 95 degrees in Chicago, working concrete, and in the morning, I felt pretty frisky. You know, by noon, uh, I felt a little different. You know, I was a, and guess what? The worst part of the halfway point was that I wasn't near done. At the end of the day, I'd be even more tired than at noon, but I was almost done, so it felt better. The heat of the noonday sun, that midday point, is a critical point, and it was in that place, it says in Nehemiah 4.10, that the strength of the laborers was giving out because there was still so much rubble. It gotten really far, but there was still so much rubble and the rubble, it says, was all you could see. And so they were losing hope. Here's the deal about this. And you can think about it in other ways, but anyone, anyone who's ever persevered at anything, uh, a marriage, a career, relationship, ministry, um, going through school, raising kids, building a church. Anyone who's ever gone through it and been able to persevere in it has been able sooner or later to see more than the rubble of the relationship or the marriage or the ministry or the betrayal that seemed to undo things that had been built. I remember years ago doing a talk about our need to understand that there are things that are actually true about us uh, but there are other things more true about us. For instance, uh, here's what's true about you. Something I know about all of you. I got your number. All of you are sinners. Big revelation. Now, nah, dirty rotten sinners, all of you. All of you have blown it, and I'm pretty sure more than once all true. You know what's more true? This is what you need to dial into if you're ever going to experience the grace of God. What's more true is this, that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, and that according to the riches of his grace, you've been made complete. So what do you see, though? Can you see anything but the rubble? What is the rubble you see that in your life has convinced you, I can't rebuild that? That's just going to remain over there somewhere. Listen to me as I close two things. Um, one is this, that sometimes our ability to see more is something we have to choose. 
Like, we have to just, someone you need to even nudge us, hey, quit looking at that, look up. So sometimes the ability to see is something we choose, and we have to make it to redirect our gaze. It says of Moses that, by, that Moses, by faith, chose to leave Egypt. He chose that. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 gives this advice in verse 2. Fix our, your eyes on something other than the rubble. The rubble is real. Don't pretend it's not there. But fix your eyes on something other than that. Try maybe Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame. So sometimes this ability to see more is a choice. And along the course of our life, you probably identify times you've had to go, snap out of it, Dave. Look up and see more, because there is more. So just stop being a baby. There's times that that's appropriate to say and to hear. But sometimes your ability... To see more is a gift because you really have become blind. And the only way you're going to see is if you get a gift. Because hard as you try to look up and see more. And it's worked before. This time you just can't see. Great story around that is Elisha's servant. He really couldn't see and he needed a gift. And as I get into this and kind of wrap it up, I'm going to ask the worship team to come and help us move from this into worship. Here's the story. 2 Kings 6, the Syrian army had surrounded the city where Elisha and his servant were. So the servant comes to Elisha, and, as you know, and says to Elisha, scared, uh, what are we going to do? And Elisha in verse 16 says, don't be afraid. Okay. Okay, it's over. I'm not afraid. No, no. <laughs> don't be afraid. For those who are with us, Elisha says, are more than those who are with them. Really? said the servant. That's not in the text, actually, but that's what I think he said. Really? Um, so, so honestly, Elisha, um, what, what is it that you see that I don't see? Because I don't see what you just said. So Elisha prayed, and he said this, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw Behold, the mountain was full of horses. It's something he couldn't see. Even if he tried, he couldn't see it. He needed a gift. He got a gift. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots full of fire all around. So if I'm sitting around thinking, okay, what are you saying, Dave? <laughs> that there's horses and chariots of fire all around and we're not going to worry about anything. And why not saying that? <clears throat> I don't know about horses and chariots. It's not what I see. What I know is this. And this is what I'm saying. God is for us. God is for you. And if God is for you, <laughs> who can be against us? Listen to me, says Paul. Romans chapter 8, 31. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And he goes on in verse 30. Three, you guys, listen to me. Who's going to bring a charge against the elect? Because some of you think it's God who's bringing a charge against the elect. Is it God who brings the charge? No, no, no. He's the one who justifies. That's what God does. He's not the condemner. He's the justifier. That's his role in the universe. And who is the one who condemns? Because some of you think it's Christ who's condemning you. No. See, that's not what... Christ does. Christ is the one who died 
for remember that that's his role he is the one who was raised and is now sitting at the right hand of the father interceding for us that's what he does that's his role so think about it verse 35 who can separate us from the love of God can tribulation how about distress war in Ukraine COVID pandemic persecution betrayal famine nakedness peril sword no don't feel good, but no, for I am convinced that none of those things, life, death, angels, principalities, things, present things to come that I am not ready for and don't know they're coming, things to come, even if the foundations are shaken and the pendulum swings, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So get your hopes up, church. Amen. Direct your gaze. Lift up your head even as we go into worship so you can see more. And even when you do that, if you can't see, let's just pray together. Lord, help us see what we can't see. In this season of life, things in the world, things in this church even that I don't even know about. Lord, help us see what we can't see. In Jesus' name, amen.